All right, you can have a seat. Thank you, Derek. Good morning. Hope you are well. If we ever had a chance to meet, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, would love to love to shake your hand and get to know you and and uh, and meet you. And if you've been here for years, I'd love to shake your hand. I love you all, and it's good to see you guys this morning. Um, I just don't want the 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 old timers to feel like left out. Like, wait, we're all family. Um, Really glad to, to have you guys here this morning. Hey, next week we're going to start back in 1 Corinthians. We've been walking through 1 Corinthians for a while. Uh, and we're going to jump back in starting in chapter 12 uh, next week. And so really excited to do that. Um, but if you're not familiar with chapter 12, what Paul's going to do is he's going to step in and begin to bring correction and encouragement to the church at Corinth around some misunderstandings that they have about the Holy Spirit and about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And and he's really, I think, he's going to me a, a real encouragement to us because he doesn't shame that church. He actually encourages them to pursue the Spirit even more and helps them have a better understanding of who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does. So what I want us to do this morning is actually spend some time looking at what, what Jesus teaches his disciples about the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to pray for me. Um, we have a, I, There's a lot to this that we're not going to be able to hit everything. But what we're talking about today matters really, really deeply. And, and I'm just going to ask that the Spirit of God would work deep in our souls this morning. So, Spirit of God, work among us, I pray. Father, would you give us understanding into to what Jesus is telling us here in John 16? Jesus, would you help us understand um, your words and your promise here. And Spirit of God, would you work to drive this word deep into our souls, deep into our bones this morning, and help us understand what you are doing in us and through us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at John 16 and what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. And, and I say this b- both because we're about to jump into 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, but also because if, you, if you're fairly new to Frontline and you haven't been around for, for super long, you might have heard us talk about one of our key distinctives as a church that we long to be a Spirit-filled. What does that mean? What, 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 what's in, what's, what do we intend by that? What, what's included in that? Um, that, that might be a question you have. And, and it might be that you're here and you're not a Christian or you're new to Christian faith and you're like, I don't even know what, what or who the Holy Spirit is. I don't understand this. I, I want to say this. We're going to work through that. And I hope that at the end of our time this morning that you have a better understanding of what the Bible teaches there. But I want to say this. We're talking about things that are central to the Christian faith. One of the key distinctives of the Christian faith is that God is one. That there is one God and yet that God is, is in the three persons and one of those is the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean for us to see God in the Spirit? So we're going to talk about that this morning. I want to start with this quote from J.D. Greer in a really helpful book called Jesus Continued. He says this, The Holy Spirit tends to be the forgotten member of the Trinity. Most Christians know He's there, but they're unclear about exactly what He does or how to interact with Him or if it's even possible. Yet something was so important about the Holy Spirit that Jesus told his disciples that it was to their advantage that he go away. If his departure meant the Spirit came, the the Spirit's presence inside them, he said, would be better than himself beside them. I want to read that again. The Spirit's presence inside them, he said, would be better than himself 
beside them. In fact, they needed the Spirit's presence so much that Jesus told them not so much as to raise a finger towards the Great Commission until the Spirit had arrived. You see, we live in a cultural moment saturated by rugged individualism. Now, I know that's not like a uh, news flash. You're like, oh, wow, Jeff's got insights in the world I've never heard of before. We all know that, right? We're Americans. We do things our own. We are a culture of two-year-olds going, no, I do it myself, Daddy. <laughs> I mean, aren't we? We are so committed to figuring everything out on our own. We throw off history. We throw off tradition. We throw off things that have been inherited for generations of collective wisdom. And we just go, nah, I think we're just going to redefine everything. We think we're wise enough. We think we're strong enough. We think we're smart enough. And probably most dangerous of all is we think we're good enough. We think that we understand what goodness really is and that we can figure it out on our own. Now, I would love to say that that's just out there in the world and the church hasn't been affected, but this way of being has so seeped into the soil and seeped into the water table that we drink it up even as Christians in the world. We believe this. We believe that we can do it on our own, that we're strong enough, that we can accomplish it. Just give us the right heading, give us a couple of provisions, and we are on our way, but the Bible tells us that we actually can do nothing apart from the Spirit of God. We are not rugged individualists. If we try that, we will fail. We are given the Spirit because we need the Spirit. We are given the Spirit because we need the Spirit. Listen to the way that Gordon Fee puts it in his brilliant book, God's Empowering Presence. He says this, if we do not have the Spirit, Paul says, we do not belong to God at all. My concern is that in our having His Spirit, we not settle for a watered-down understanding that gives more glory to Western rationalism and spiritual anemia than to the living God. That's why I want us to talk about this today, because this matters so critically to our life as believers, our life as a church so I want us to look at three important things this morning. First, I want us to look at who the Holy Spirit is not. Because there's a lot of misconceptions that we've even imbibed and, and absorbed in ways that we're not even aware. So who's the Holy Spirit not? Then let's look at who the Holy Spirit is. Who does Jesus tell us the Holy Spirit is? And then third, what does life by the Spirit look like? You ready to go? I hope so. I didn't get a lot of affirmation there, but I hope we're ready to go. Let's go. It's important for us to start with who the Holy Spirit is not. And I say that because we often believe things about the Spirit, maybe not with our minds. Like if, if I were to give you a test, you might pass the test on who the Holy Spirit really is or who he's really not. And I might ask you, is the Holy Spirit this? And you go, no, that's stupid. But we live as if these things are true. So I want to name them, to bring them to our attention, to raise in our consciousness the ways in which we have assumed things about the Spirit that are not real. The first way in which I think we, we wrongfully see the Holy Spirit is we see Him as an impersonal force. An impersonal force, much like the force in Star Wars. Like He's this power that's there. You don't relate to Him. You don't talk to Him. He's just there. And... and, and 
we refer to the Holy Spirit, whether explicitly or not, we refer to it or perceive the Holy Spirit as an it, not a he. As an it, not a he. I think we see it a little bit like this tag-along fairy, like we've got this tinkerbell over our shoulder, and occasionally we need a little bit of pixie dust, so we kind of pick up the Holy Spirit, sprinkle it over my situation, then put it back for a little bit when I need it again later, right? He's, he's a force. I think a second way in which we wrongly see the Holy Spirit is we see Him as a technique or a technology. We see Him as something that we wield, that we master, that we control. He's a tool in this sense. He, we, we see him, uh, he, he's almost, he, in one sense, he's like a, a wrench that we need when, when something is, is not working. He's an uninvolved guru that we ascend to go talk to and then come back, but he's not really involved in our day-to-day life. He's a magic dispenser. He just dispenses magic whenever we need it. Or he's a cosmic vending machine. Put in a quarter, out comes a Snickers, and you're like, hey, you can't buy a Snickers for a quarter. You're right. I'm not that old, but... You're right. But he's not a vending machine. He's not something we control or we use. The Holy Spirit, third, is not a relief pitcher. Relief pitcher. I don't know if you're a baseball fan. I don't know how you can be a baseball fan because it's so boring. And I know that a few of you are about to get up and walk out right now. So I don't even know that I've ever seen a relief pitcher. I've just heard about them. A relief pitcher is the person that comes in in the fourth inning or the seventh inning because the starting pitcher gets tired, right? The relief pitcher comes in, starters tired, starters starting to lose a little bit on that fastball. We've got to bring in a relief pitcher to take over and take us to the end of the game. We see the Holy Spirit like that. Hey, I'll let you know, Spirit, when I get tired or when my arm starts aching. Maybe I, I might need you in the top of the eighth. I don't know. We'll see how I can get this last curveball thrown. But we see him as a relief pitcher. He just takes over when we're out of juice. Or maybe in a similar way, he's like the spiritual airbag. He's just there on a, for, to protect me during a wreck. But he's simply there to pick up where I fail. Or fourthly, I wonder if we see him kind of like a circus performer or a carnival barker. A circus performer or a carnival barker. He's just this, he's this loud mouth in a striped suit that's just trying to make everything spectacular and trying to drum up a lot of energy and impress us and entertain us and give us just a little extra in life. Neither of those are who the Holy Spirit is. None of them are. And I think it's really important for us to name these things because they hide in plain sight. Again, if I were to ask you, is is the Holy Spirit a cosmic vending machine? I'm pretty sure most of us would pass that test and go, no, he's not. That's correct answer. But how many of us live as if he is? How many of us approach him as if he is? It's an important question we need to ask. We need to be thinking about who the Spirit is not. When we ask this question, who then is the Holy Spirit? And that's where I want to turn our attention to now. What is, who does Jesus say the Holy Spirit is? Now, if I read the Bible cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, I'm going to see in this history of redemption, this history of God's work to be redemption in the world, multiple sendings. We see in the beginning, um, God sending Abraham, Abram at the time, out of one land into a land of promise. He sends Israel into Egypt. He sends them back out of Egypt into the promised land. He sends them into exile. There are these sendings, these movements from God 
that he's actually using to bring about redemption. But there are two critical ones in the New Testament that are divine sendings I want to draw our attention to. The first is the incarnation. That Jesus was sent. The Son of God was sent to this world to take on flesh and do ministry in a different kind of way among us. That the Son of God was sent by the Father in flesh in what we call the incarnation, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's what we hear about Jesus. But there's a second sending. It often doesn't get as much fanfare, but the Bible would say it's just as important, and that is the sending of the Spirit. That the Spirit of God was sent by, by God in Acts 2 upon the church, and he hasn't taken him back since. He didn't send him down for a short little mission, and they're like, all right, I'm going to rescue him out and hope you guys got what you needed. No, he sent the Spirit, and the Spirit stays with us. But Jesus helps us see what's about to happen. He's talking to his disciples about what's about to happen. And what we, in the, in the 21st century, look back on and see had happened about the sending of the Spirit. And so I want us to look at what Jesus says here in John 16. Start with me in the second half of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage it is to your advantage that I go away. Let those words sink in. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I want you to put yourselves for just a moment in the shoes of the disciples. These 12 disciples, there were, there were more. There were men and women that were following. But, but right now, he's with his 12 disciples. These are men that have grown up in Jewish homes, in Jewish traditions, going to synagogue, hearing about Yahweh and the promise of the Messiah that he would send to bring redemption to the world. They, they grew up hearing about the promises of God to Abraham and to Moses and to David. He, they, they grew up anticipating that one day a Messiah, a Savior, was going to be coming, and they were longing for that day, and they never thought it would come. And then they met Jesus. Somewhere around three years before this moment, they encountered this carpenter. But he wasn't just a carpenter. He taught like nobody they'd ever heard before. When he talked, it was, it was, as, if, it was as, as if life was coming into their souls. He was... So dynamic, but not just in a performance. He, he spoke like somebody who had authority. He spoke different. And then they saw things they couldn't explain. Demons were cast out. Leprosy was cured. People that couldn't walk from birth all of a sudden got up and took their beds and walked home. And then their friend, their dear friend, Lazarus died. He was buried. They came to the funeral, and Jesus ruined the funeral and raised him from the dead. But he wasn't just spectacular in terms of how he taught and, and these miracles he did. He was a different kind of gentle presence. He, he instead of going and cozying up to the kings and the, the princes, he asked the little kids to come and hang out on his lap. He was gentle. He was kind. 
They'd never experienced anything like this. And they began to put the, they connect, started to connect the dots. They go, wait, 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 this is the Savior that we've been waiting for. So I want you to imagine you're in that position where you're waiting for the Messiah to come and set up as king again. He's going to reestablish our nation as a nation of prominence. The nation of Israel will, be, will not be a laughingstock anymore. And it's in that moment of that anticipation, waiting for that end, that Jesus says, hey, I'm going away. And they were sad. So would you. And then he says, it's better for you that I go. And you don't believe it, and they didn't believe it. No, 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 Jesus, I need you with me. I need you right by my side. I need, I need to ask you questions. I need, I need you there when, 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 when somebody is sick and hurt. I, I need you here. And Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away because then I will send the Spirit of God and that will be better for you. Jesus makes this audacious claim because it's true. I want to look at the ways in which Jesus expounds upon who the Holy Spirit is. And we're going to move really quickly through this passage. And we're not going to be able to hit it in detail. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you this week to spend time in this chapter, John 16. I want you to block some time this week to prayerfully sit in this text and ask the Spirit to help you understand what's happening here, especially as we step into 1 Corinthians again next week, okay? Let's go quick, starting in verse 8. Jesus says this, and when he comes, the the helper, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and, and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I think first thing that Jesus is telling us about the Holy Spirit is that he comes as a prophet and a proclaimer. The Holy Spirit comes as a prophet and a proclaimer. He is coming to help us see things we would miss otherwise, and he speaks truth with a prophetic voice to our ears. He speaks to us about about what sin is and how it hides in unbelief in our heart. He, He speaks to the world about what is really righteous and what is really good. And he speaks here this word about concerning judgment. It may seem weird to our ears, but I want you to imagine in this moment that, that, that Jesus is on the, the stage and somebody from, from, from many miles away has heard that this guy was, was crucified and dead. And they're like, oh, I guess he wasn't strong enough to beat death. And the Holy Spirit's going, no, 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 he won. He won. And he's judged the world and he's judged death. Jesus wins. The Holy Spirit speaks as a prophet and a proclaimer. Look at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Fascinating. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. I think the second thing that Jesus teaches us about the Holy Spirit is that he is a guide and teacher for us. 
he leads us into all truth. Here's the important thing. He's not a good teacher in the sense that he's really good on a whiteboard or a chalkboard. And he, and he, he, he's a really good lecturer that helps you and tutors you in these ways. He is he's the one that helps us understand truth that goes from head down into heart. He drives these truths into us and he drives us into what's true. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He leads us into all truth. He's our counselor. He's one that helps us understand. He's a guide. He leads us through life, understanding the word of God and how it speaks to our life and our situation. Look at verse 14. He will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In addition to being a prophet and a proclaimer, a guide and a teacher, he also is an enabler and a gift giver. He enables things that we can't do in our, in our own strength. He enables us to walk by faith. He enables us to understand things that we couldn't otherwise. He empowers us. And he gives gifts. He gives gifts of faith and obedience. And he gives us gifts to serve one another with. It says that all the things that the, that the Father has given the Son will now be taken from the Son to us through the Spirit. Next, I want you to, I want you to pull back a few verses before the ones that we've read so far this morning to John 15, starting in verse 26. Jesus says this, but when the helper comes, and this helper here, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you, listen to this, to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's doing service, offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. There's so much here. There's so much here. And yet, simply one crucial part to take away here is that, the, that Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit is the one who keeps us and protects us. He keeps us and protects us. He's a comforter, not just in the sense of like a, somebody who's got a, a nice soft shoulder to cry on and goes, hey, here, here, I'm, I'm with you. He, he's more than that. He's actually with us in the darkest moments of our life. See, the disciples didn't realize that in a short few months, there would literally be threats on their lives and within the next couple of years, some of their friends, some of the people listening to Jesus right here would be killed by the authorities to try to shut them up. And Jesus says, in the midst of that, to keep you from falling away, to keep you from running away, I'm giving you the Spirit to be with you. Now it's back up to chapter 14. This is in the same, probably the same evening in which Jesus is teaching his disciples but a little bit before that, in chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper 
to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But listen, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's massive, folks. That's massive. It's really important here. We've got to recognize this. Jesus is now calling the Holy Spirit our seal and our assurance. He, 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 listen, he, he is not sending his assistant because he needs a break and needs a vacation. He's not sending us some demigod because he did the big heavy stuff and now he's going to let somebody do cleanup. He's actually, Jesus is saying that God himself is in you right now with you by his Spirit. The Spirit of God Paul will say elsewhere in the New Testament is a seal of our salvation. Gordon Fee summarizes it really brilliantly in his book, God's Empowering Presence, by the very title of the book. He says, this is the simplest way I know to explain who the Holy Spirit, he is God's empowering presence. Look at Ephesians 3 verses 14 to 19 with me. I want you to see the centrality of the work of the Spirit in how Paul explains what he does in the life of a believer right here. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Through what? Through his Spirit in what? Your inner being. Did you catch that? How important the work of the Spirit is? That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Now listen to verse 17. So that. So we're given the Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is God with us. Not God's secretary. It's not God's apprentice. What we see in, un, un, unveiled in Scripture through the New Testament is that that the Spirit of God is God. That, that, that what, what Christianity is referred to as the Trinity for thousands of years is this understanding of one God and three divine persons. That the Father is God in heaven. That the Son is God in the flesh. And that the Spirit is God in us. But that God in us is empowering us. He's strengthening us. He fills us. And he does this in not just extraordinary ways, he does this in ordinary ways, ways in which we often miss. That God empowers us and it is his presence with us. So if this is who the Holy Spirit is, then here's my question. What does that mean for how we live as followers of Jesus today? 
Would you just start or turn to me, turn with me to Acts one? See, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus last week. It was amazing. And you would think probably if you were just reading the Bible and you didn't know what was coming, you'd think, oh man, that I think I think we're done. Like Jesus took all the sin and he raised from the dead and he defeated death and uh, now he's alive, and it's like, okay, let's go home. Like, that's, that's a pretty good ending to a story, right? Like, that would, that would write well at the end of a movie. But that's not where it ends. As Jesus has resurrected, he's taught his disciples, he's about to ascend back to the Father, and he says these words in Acts 1, starting in verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You see, Jesus is saying, I've taught you. You've seen my resurrection. You've seen me after my resurrection. I have empowered you in so many ways. I've trained you in so many ways. And he goes, I know that you're eager to tell everybody I'm still alive, but don't yet. Wait in Jerusalem until you get the promise of the Spirit that the Father has promised to you. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. I, I think in a sense we could put this in word in, 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 in the phrase that Chad led us into a while ago that we sang earlier, that while we wait... That in this long waiting of redemptive history, or whether it's simply a waiting in your own life where you're waiting for the Spirit of God to do something. While we wait, it's not yours to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority. Listen to this, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is why we want to be a spirit-filled church. I was reading a book this week by a philosopher named James K. A. Smith, um, and I, 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 this quote jumped out of the page, out of the middle of a paragraph, and it's been gnawing on my heart and my soul uh, all week long. He says this: "To be Christian is to be charismatic. To be Christian is to be charismatic." Now, when you hear that word charismatic, some of you may be going, I don't, I've never heard that word before. Was like that the winning word in the National Spelling Bee this year? Like that sounds, I don't know if I could spell it. That sounds like a hard word. No, it's not what it was. For some of you, you're like, thank you, finally, we're in a church that believes in the Spirit and we're pursuing those things. And some of you are like, uh, hang on, what? <laughs> I've seen stuff done in the name of charismatic that I'm not really fond of. I've seen some crazy stuff. That I don't know what to do with it, and I, I really want to stay away from it. I want you to understand the way he uses this word here is, is in a biblical sense, this understanding that the Spirit of God is, is the gift from the Father, and he gives gifts to us. That's what that means. That's used in lots of different ways. But quite simply, to be a charismatic in this sense is to recognize that the Spirit of God has been given to us already, and the Spirit's presence with us gives us gifts for what we need, what God calls us to do in life. This is why, 
This is why uh, Mr. Or Dr. Smith says to be Christian is to be charismatic. He's saying you can't be a Christian if you don't recognize that the Spirit of God has been given to you and is at work in you. Even if you're not aware that it's the Spirit. He's at work in you. He's helping you see things and know things and learn things that maybe you didn't realize that was the Spirit at work, but, but what, what, what Dr. Smith is naming is he, that is the work of the Spirit in your life. To be Christian is to be charismatic. Because if I were to spend a lot of time unpacking kind of uh, all the New Testament, what the New Testament says about the Holy Spirit, we would see this, that, that, that the Bible teaches that without the Spirit of God, we can't actually believe. He, he actually is the, the giver of faith for us. That without the Spirit, we can't truly know God. We might know things about God, but we can't actually know Him. Without the Spirit, we can't truly serve in callings and giftings that He has given us. Without the Spirit of God, we actually can't mature and walk out in holiness. It's the Spirit that works in our soul and our hearts to walk in obedience to Jesus. Without the Spirit, we won't endure. You don't have enough strength. You don't have enough, you don't have enough muscle in the tank to make it to the end of nine innings. You won't endure without the work of the Spirit working your soul. And without the Spirit, we can't hope because it's actually our hope is in the fact that God is at work now in this world by His Spirit. So at the risk of reductionism, I want us to look at what I think are three things that we ought to as a church move towards if we're going to live by the Spirit. If we as a church are going to be a church that's Spirit-filled, moving towards the Spirit, I think there are three things here that ought to mark us. The first is this. I think we, Frontline Yukon, I'm not speaking to the church generally, I'm speaking to us in this room right now. Frontline Yukon, we need to have a radical openness and expectation for what the Spirit might do. We need to have a radical openness and expectation for what the Spirit might do. Now, I don't just mean this in the spectacular ways. Like, I've got friends that have been healed of cancer, like straight up. Like, had cancer on Thursday, didn't have it on Tuesday. And the only thing that changed between those days is they gathered for prayer at Frontline South over him, and they felt the Spirit of God move. And the doctor's like, I don't know, it was there and it's not there anymore. Like, I've seen that kind of stuff. My grandfather miraculously healed. I've also prayed for many even in this room for healing, and the Lord hasn't brought the healing the way we've wanted. So I'm not talking about some kind of spectacular fireworks every single moment, but we need to expect that the Spirit of God is at work and sometimes does the outwardly miraculous, and sometimes he does the inwardly miraculous by holding us and guiding us through difficult things. The Spirit of God is at work in us. Are we open and expectant? The second thing is I think that for us to walk by the Spirit, we need to see, a, see the world as enchanted again. We need to see the world as enchanted again. I use that word intentionally because a, 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 a philosopher uh, named Charles Taylor uh, wrote this book, The Secular Age, in which he talks about secularization, what it's done to society. He says one of the things that, that our modern kind of our, our modern mind has done over the last couple of hundred years in the Western world is we've chased all the supernatural out of our view to where we don't see anything but molecules bouncing around. We've lost a sense that there are spiritual realities happening around us. We've discounted them. 
because I can't put them, uh, because I can't put them in a test tube, because I can't see them through a telescope. We dismiss them, and he says we've disenchanted the world. And he goes, but if we actually believe in what the Bible teaches, we believe that the Spirit of God is at work. And we believe that there are other spiritual realities that are at war. But Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and spiritual, and spiritual warfare is a real thing. We need to see again that the world is enchanted. It's not mere physical. Thirdly, if we are to be a spirit-filled church, a, a church walking by the Spirit, it should lead to us, Frontline Yukon, believing, trusting, and following Jesus. Now, why do I say that in this, this, uh, a sermon about the Spirit of God? Because the Spirit of God doesn't show up on the scene and go, hey, look at me. Hey, look at me. I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm God too. Like, Jesus did cool stuff, but look, I can do stuff too. Like, hey, watch me. Look, look at me. I, I'm important. That's not what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God comes into the world and goes, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He comes proclaiming the good news that was purchased by Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection. He points to the reality of who Jesus is. It is Jesus' spirit with us. They're not in competition. The spirit says, I'm going to help you, not follow me, help, help you follow Jesus. That gets complicated, Trinitarian theology, like, isn't Yeah, same God at work, but my point is this. God is always pointing our eyes to Jesus. The Father was in the Old Testament when he pointed us to the Messiah, and the Spirit is after the resurrection pointing us back to the resurrected Christ. The point of all of this is that we might believe, trust, follow, love, worship, adore Jesus. And if we are a Spirit-filled church, We are a Jesus-centered church. We talk so much about the person and the work of Jesus, but I think we need to recover an understanding of the person and the work of the Spirit who points us to the person and work of Jesus. So how do we respond to this? I'm asking the Spirit of God to lead you in that. But I'm also asking, and, and your pastors and your, your leaders in this church have been praying for a long time that the Lord would do some deep work in us over the next couple of months. As we step into 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, this isn't, this isn't meant to just be some kind of mental exercise where we, where we jump through some complicated understanding of Paul's logic and argument. We actually want to be a Spirit-filled church We actually want to be a people that are walking in deep dependence on the Spirit. And I want to remind us, I want to remind us, I know we know this here with our heads. I want to remind our hearts, the Spirit is with you now. You don't have to go clean yourself up, go be more spiritual, learn the secret code. The Spirit has been given to you now and is at work. What I'm asking is that the Lord would open our eyes to see the ways in which He is at work and, listen, the ways in which He wants to work in our lives. Because we actually can suppress the work of the Spirit. The Bible tells us that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. 
And actually, the Apostle James in his book will say that at times we have not because we ask not. The Spirit is not stingy, folks. He wants to meet us at the table. He wants to meet us in prayer. He wants to meet us in community groups. He wants to meet you in your conversations at work. He wants to meet you in those dark corners where nobody sees what you do in shame and what you're trying to walk away from. He sees the questions of your heart. He sees the challenges of your soul. He hears the ache in your prayers. And I want us as a church to, with everything we have, to pursue being a spirit-filled church so that we might be a Jesus-centered church. Would you pray with me?